Nurses are on strike again. Rishi Sunak is making crappy excuses again. And Britain is still falling apart. Yes, it can feel like Groundhog Day in British politics. It's all change at Tisky Sour, though. That's because for the first time, as my co-host, I have Rivka Brown, commissioning editor and reporter at Navarra Media. How are you doing? I'm great, Michael. Thanks for having me. It's nice to have you in the booth. And um, I should say, saying, this isn't our first time on Tisky Sour. Rivka has been on Tisky Sour a bunch of times. It's the first time I've got her for the whole show. So I am very pleased, feeling very honoured. We're talking about strikes. We're talking about Tories telling porkies. We're talking about the gender recognition reform bill and that constitutional standoff between the governments in Westminster and Holyrood and the latest when it comes to the horrors um, within the Metropolitan Police. Members of the Royal College of Nursing are today on the first day of a two-day strike. They're striking over pay and conditions. On a picket line outside a London hospital, the BBC spoke to two nurses. Today is all about getting Steve Barclay to the negotiation table. It's about fair pay for the skills of nurses. And, you know, we, it's about the future of the NHS. We are on our knees. You know, morale is at an all-time low. And we need better working conditions, fair pay. David, you work in haematology and chemotherapy, and you're, you're out today. Is it largely about pay or is it conditions? It's both. It's about pay. We've had a 20% pay cut since 2010. We can't attract young, fresh nurses into the profession. And there's been an exodus of senior staff who are leaving to work in Australia, the Middle East, or they've just taken early retirement. But it's also about safe staffing. Every single shift we're short-staffed. Patients are not receiving quality care or safe care. So it's both. On the same programme, General Secretary of the Royal College of Nurses, Pat Cullen, once again called for the government to come to the negotiation table. We had optimism uh, about a week ago when the Prime Minister himself seemed to have stepped in and we felt that um, there was light at the end of the tunnel. But unfortunately, um, that, that, that didn't come to fruition. So I am saying to the Prime Minister today, he can, can continue to have strikes if, if, if he continues to dig into his trenches and government continue to do that. We need to get round a negotiating table. We need to sort this um, NHS crisis out for our patients, for the nursing staff that are really, really struggling, both personally and professionally, every single day of the week. But this is back now in government's hands. We have extended an olive branch, in fact, the whole tree to government. We've said, meet us halfway. So now, come on, let's get round the table and let's stop the strikes um, so that we don't have to continue this into February. The Health Secretary, Steve Barclay, doesn't want to budge, though. He's penned an article for The Independent where he writes this. If we provide unaffordable pay rises to NHS staff, we will take billions of pounds away from where we need it most. Unaffordable pay hikes will mean cutting patient care and stoking the inflation that would make us all poorer. Now, that is a disgraceful statement on so many levels. The emotional blackmail to say to a group of workers who have worked extraordinarily hard over a pandemic and are now you know, going to work in what to me sound like essentially horrific conditions. You know, you're not being able to save the lives you would like to save because the NHS is so understaffed. Say, if you want to not suffer a pay cut, well, it's going to have to come out of the operations budget. It's going to have to come from someone else. So essentially, if you ask for a pay rise, if we give you a pay rise, that's going to kill other people. Like, what? It's such a disgraceful way to speak to people who are keeping our NHS on life support, you know, who, who are going to work every day in horrific conditions. All they want to do is have a decent wage, a wage that is similar to the one they had 10 years ago, so that none of them have to rely on food banks. And you're saying, well, if you want to pay rise, you're going to have to explain to patients why their operating theater hasn't been upgraded in the past 10 years because you'll be taking money from them. Disgusting tax the rich so that we can fund every part of the NHS well instead of playing off nurses and, and other parts of the health system is disgusting. Stoking inflation, obviously ridiculous. Public sector wages are currently trailing private sector wages. And we all know that the, the inflation we're currently seeing is caused by a war in Ukraine and supply chain issues, not by nurses wanting to avoid having a real terms pay cut. Moving on, at Prime Minister's questions today, Keir Starmer went in hard on the crisis in the NHS. Mr Speaker, it's three minutes past 12. If somebody phones, if somebody phones 999 now because they have chest pains and fear it might be a heart attack, 
when would the Prime Minister expect an ambulance to arrive? Mr Speaker, it's absolutely right that people can rely on the emergency services when they need them. And that's why we're rapidly implementing measures to improve the delivery of ambulance times and indeed urgent and emergency care. But I'd say to the honourable gentleman, if he cares about ensuring that patients get access to life-saving emergency care when they need it, why won't he support our minimum safety legislation? The Prime Minister could deflect all he likes, but for the person, for the person suffering from chest pains, the clock started ticking straight away. Every minute counts. That's why the government says an ambulance should be there in 18 minutes. In that case, it would mean just about 20 past 12. Now, I, don't, I know he doesn't want to answer the question I asked him, so I'm going to ask him again. When will that ambulance arrive? Because of the extra funding we're putting in to relieve pressure in urgent and emergency care departments, because of the investment we're putting in in ambulance call handling, we will improve ambulance times as we are recovering from the pandemic and indeed the pressures of this winter. But I say to the Honourable Gentleman again, because he makes my case for me, he describes the life-saving care that people desperately need. So why? When in other countries like France, Spain, Italy and others, why is he depriving people here that care? Starmer went on to explain that if someone having a heart attack had called an ambulance in Peterborough at 12.03, so three minutes past midday, it wouldn't have arrived until 10 past two, so over two hours later. Of course, that's disgraceful and explains, I mean, why we're seeing so many excess deaths at the moment. If you have to wait two hours for an ambulance when you've had a heart attack, when it should be 18 minutes, you don't have to be a rocket scientist or a trained doctor to work out what might happen. Now, it also seems unlikely that Sunak's attacks on labour around minimum service laws will be effective. According to pollsters Ipsos, almost 60% of Brits believe the government is principally to blame for the nursing route lasting so long. Only 10% blame the nurses. And this is the context in which the GMB union has announced four new strike dates in February and March for their members in the ambulance service. The GMB's national secretary gave this explanation of the decision. Ambulance workers are angry. In their own words, they are done. They do an incredible job in the toughest of circumstances and face real pressures getting through this cost of living crisis. Our message to the government is clear. Talk, pay, now. Instead, they've made things worse by demonising ambulance workers who provided life and limb cover on strike days. The same people who left picket lines to rush to save lives. The government is playing politics, playing games with their scaremongering. The people of our country will not have it. Public support for ambulance workers has been incredible. It's clear the only way to resolve this dispute is to make GMB ambulance workers a proper pay offer. But it seems the cold, dead hands of number 10 and 11 Downing Street are stopping this from happening. In the face of government inaction, we are left with no option but to take industrial action. Ambulance strikes will be held on the 6th and 20th of February and the 6th and 20th of March. The first of those dates will coincide with the next nurses' strikes. We're seeing increasing numbers of coordinated strikes now, or at least informally coordinated. You've got nurses and ambulance workers going on strike on the same day, 6th of February. On the 1st of February, we see lots of other groups of workers going on strike, teachers, civil servants, and others as well. The TUC have called that the day of action against the new strike restriction laws. Rivka, at PMQs today, Rishi Sunak really seemed to be clutching at straws, didn't he? It's getting to the point where the RCN, let's just remember, the Royal College of Nursing, in its, in its articles when it was created in the early 20th century, it actually forbade striking. The fact that it's going on the first strike in its history shows the dire straits that nursing is in. Just looking at the profession specifically, obviously the ambulances are on strike as well, the paramedics. There are 47,000 nursing vacancies in this country, you know, and who can blame tens of thousands of nurses for walking out of their jobs when they're literally 13%, 14% of them are going to food banks after doing backbreaking work day after day. 
you know, they're watching their patients die in understaffed wards. It's totally understandable that there is no one to do those jobs. And, you know, when Steve Barkley, the business secretary, says that, you know, hikes in pay would cut patient care, it's not pay hikes that cut patient care. It's poverty wages that cut patient care. And Rishi Sunak knows it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't think anyone is buying any of their arguments. I mean, they're all just so transparently gross. I don't think anyone sort of listens to Steve Barclay saying that or reads it. It was in The Independent. I don't know why I wrote it in The Independent, by the way. It just seemed to me a bizarre paper to write and it's not even printed. But anyway, that's an aside. Um, people reading that, you're sort of threatening the nurses. If you demand a pay strike, we're going to have to take it away from other sectors of the NHS, of hospitals. I don't think anyone reads that and thinks, aha, yeah, that's a good point, Steve Barclay. I mean, doesn't everyone just read that and think, what a despicable, disgraceful man? And the inflation argument as well. Everyone can see that inflation is not being caused by nurses. I mean, it's completely incoherent in the first place because the way a wage price spiral is supposed to work is essentially you've got workers who see prices are rising. So it, they could be rising for another reason, say, for example, a war in Ukraine or, or supply chain issues, whatever. You see workers that see prices are rising, then they demand a pay rise. And then that increases the input costs of an industry. Say if you're the car industry and all the workers demand higher wages, and that will increase the price of cars, right? And then that will further increase inflation because the price of cars have gone up. And then workers in other industries will demand a pay rise because they want to buy cars, et cetera, et cetera. That's the wage price spiral. Now, obviously, this doesn't work in the NHS because you, you don't have to pay to use the NHS, right? So that no one is going to be demanding a pay rise because nurses are getting paid more because we don't have to pay for nurses. Now, Obviously, the government does, but that's not inflationary. All they have to do is tax the rich a little bit more, and then they can give them the pay rise they deserve. So it's completely nonsense. Also, I mean, when we had Jonathan Portez on before, he said the way that public sector pay could feed into a wage price spiral is if public sector wages go really, really high, and then that sets the standard, and then wage rises in the private sector go really, really high. Now, for one, wage rises in the private sector are currently higher than, than wage rises in the public sector. And either way, I mean, the wage rises in the private sector aren't even inflationary now because they're below inflation on average, right? So you can't have a wage price spiral if everyone's still getting real terms wage cuts, which is what we're getting right now. Rivka, it's difficult to see an end in sight, isn't it? I mean, it just feels like we're just going to see strike up, strike up, strike, and the government not giving in. And I just, yeah. I can't really see how it's going to end. I mean, what, what's the way out of this? It's hard for me to see as well, because honestly, the Tories don't care if the NHS goes under. And part of me is tempted to think that they are doing this. They are, they are kind of prolonging this strike action in order to bleed the NHS dry, in order to kind of make it crumble more than it already has. And why should they care? You know, we know that dozens of Tory MPs, including the former health secretary, Sajid Javid, own shares in private health companies. So they stand to profit enormously from the NHS going under and people having to flee into the private sector, as we know they are already doing. And, you know, on a day-to-day -day level, Tory MPs like Rishi Sunak, who won't answer journalists when they ask him whether he has private health care, probably have no clue what's going on in the NHS because they've got expensive booper healthcare plans. So, you know, for people like him, you know, people like him aren't the ones who are witnessing firsthand what's going on in the NHS. And that's why, you know, the reason the public is so overwhelmingly supportive of the strikers, not that I think, you know, winning the argument or public support is necessarily going to win the strikes, although obviously it has a role to play. But the reason the public are so supportive is because we're the people who are sat for hours in NHS. We're the people who, whose parents, whose loved ones are dying because they aren't getting the care they need. And Tory MPs are the people whose bank balances, you know, if Tory MPs' bank balances, let's say, depend on bleeding the NHS dry, our lives depend on saving it. It's difficult to see how this is going to end. But I think what the Tories are hoping is that the longer this goes on, the more the public are going to get fatigued and they're going to say, oh, God, why don't the nurses just accept the pay rise? Or not accept, you know, the, the real terms pay cut, in fact. Why don't they just accept what they're being offered, is what I mean to say. But yeah, I don't think that's going to happen this time around because people can see very clearly the crisis in the NHS. And I don't think anyone thinks the nurses sucking it up or the ambulance drivers sucking it up and accepting a real terms pay cut is good for their health. So good for their health isn't good for any of our health, right? So I don't think the Tories are going to win this one. Let's go straight on to our next story. Right now, the government are trying to push anti-strike legislation through Parliament. 
The minimum service levels bill, if it passes, will give certain public sector employers the right to force workers to continue to deliver services during strikes and fire them if they refuse. One argument in favour of the bill that the Tories have made time and time again is this. This shouldn't be controversial. The International Labour Organization supports minimum service levels. We, we have, the, they're, they're present in France, in Italy, in Spain. Normally, he's in favour of more European alignment, Mr. Speaker. Why not now? The legislation simply brings us into line, as my humble friend and others are just saying, with many other modern European nations, countries like Spain and Italy and France and Ireland have introduced minimum service levels, which they use in a common sense way to reduce the impact of strikes. The International Labour Organization itself states minimum service levels can be a proportionate way of balancing uh, the right to strike with the need to protect the wider public, and that is what we are doing. Our own unions subscribe to and support the ILO, and that is what we support as well. The United States, I gave the example, 32 out of 50 states have an outright ban on public sector strikes. That includes New York. Other states like Canada, Australia, Italy and Spain all have embedded in statute minim minimum service levels that apply to important public services that are often drawn much more widely than the government's proposing. They include things like waste collection, postal services, broadcast services, the administration of justice, water distribution and energy supply. And I pick these out, Mr Deputy Speaker, not just because they're random examples, but because every single one of these states is a member of the International Labour Organization. They are bound by exactly the same rules as us, and they are among our closest comparators around the world. So the last person you saw there was Laura Farish. She was talking about public sector strike bans, including in the US. And on one level, she is right. In New York, for example, the Taylor Law bans public sector workers going on strike. In that state, public sector unions can be slapped with big fines for taking industrial action, and their leaders can be jailed. So she seemed to be suggesting, well, it's worse in the United States. Why can't our unions accept that here? The reason we shouldn't is because she's wrong to say that the law in America is consistent with the statutes of the International Labour Organization. That's the UN body that sets labour standards that all of these ministers keep appealing to. They keep saying, oh, the ILO backs what we're doing. They back all of these restrictive laws elsewhere and they back them here. Well, they don't actually. In 2016, the ILO said that the Taylor Law in New York violates the human rights of New York public sector workers, while in 2011, it rebuked the state for failing to live up to its labour obligations. And the International Labour Organization doesn't seem keen on the proposed Tory laws in minimum services either. In particular, Sunaks and Shap's claim that the ILO supports minimum service levels came as a surprise to its Director General Gilbert Ungbo. The BBC's Faisal Islam spoke to him at the World Economic Forum in Davos. I'm not uh, aware of any um, bilateral discussion on this matter. Um, we are very worried that workers may have to accept um, situation be, um, so they don't get themselves out of job. Um, they may have to accept situation that is below par. And it wasn't only the ILO that seems to disagree with the government's bill. The US Labour Secretary Martin J. Walsh was keen to chip in too. Now, The Guardian reports this. After hearing Ungbo's comments, that's the ILO General Secretary, the US Labour Secretary Martin J. Walsh was cited as urging the broadcaster to ask him for his thoughts, clearly keen to express his viewpoint on whether he supported minimum service levels. Walsh said, No, I don't know about the legislation, but I certainly will work with the ILO. The United States is a board member of the ILO as well. I would not support anything that would take away from workers. So both the International Labour Organization and the US government appears sceptical of Sunak's plans to restrict workers' rights to strike. And they were happy to express that view at the world's biggest pro-business meeting. That's a Davos, right? This is not them sort of appealing to labor unions. I mean, they're appealing to the world's elites, right? And they're, they're saying this. So it, it seems to me pretty embarrassing for the government. And unsurprisingly, it led to Labour's deputy leader, Angela Rayner, to criticize the government on social media. She said this, Grant Shapps has been hiding behind warped and willful misunderstandings of the ILO code in his desperate attempts to justify this shoddy, unworkable and vindictive piece of legislation. Now he's been found out and served with a stinging rebuke. Now, if you watched our show on Monday, 
you would have seen my interview with a labor law expert explaining why the Tories were being so disingenuous when they claimed that their law was backed by the International Labour Organization and that it was, you know, liberal compared to many of our peer nations. He debunked that. Now the ILO themselves seem to be debunking it. And bizarrely, the US government. I mean, Rivka, what do you make of this? Are they going to have to stop trotting out these arguments now that the ILO has weighed in with what they actually think? I am old enough to remember about like less than a year and a half ago when Dawn Butler was thrown out of the House of Commons for calling Boris Johnson a liar. Rishi Sunak and Grant Chaps are descended from a long line of Tory liars. In fact, you know, sometimes I think that you sort of have to fail a lie detector test to get into the Tory party. <laughs> these are these are hereditary liars. There's something in their blood. So I don't think anything is going to stop them lying, really. Um, but I think, you know, in some ways, what's interesting is that they've been caught in their lie. And in particular, you know, it's funny that they felt the need to lie about any of this, the need to lie about having international support for their union busting anti-strike legislation. You know, respect for international conventions on civil liberties and human rights has never been a Tory priority. That's why they want to take us out of the European Convention um, on Human Rights. So if anything, I'm pretty surprised that in this case, the Tories have called for international backup. Yeah, they very much pick and choose, don't they? So they're clearly not committed to international rules and regulations. But in this case, they were, well, naive enough to think that actually they did support, they, they did think that what they were saying would be in line with the International Labour Organization. It's not. But I remember actually when we spoke to an officer at the FBU, so the Fire Brigades Union, he was saying, look, fine, if, if the Tories want to talk international comparisons when it comes to union rights, we're happy to do that. Because the Tories say, let's have minimum service laws. They do it in France. They do it in Spain. They do it in Germany. But when you say, oh, well, if we're looking at France, Germany and Spain, why don't we elect workers to boards? Why don't we have statutory collective bargaining between trade unions and employers? Why don't we have a 35-hour work week like they have in France, right? And they're like, oh, no, 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 we don't need to compare ourselves to those countries. We compare, they, they compare themselves to those countries when they want to bring in any kind of restrictive law when it comes to the rights of workers to represent themselves. And then as soon as we look at what those countries are actually like, where they do, you know, on the whole, have more rights than we have here. Oh, no, 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 no. We don't need to look at what they do in Europe. We've, we've got nothing to do with Europe. We're, we're going to leave all of their statutes, as you say, Rivka. We want to leave the European Convention on Human Rights, so I don't care what they do in Germany and France. Well, you did when you wanted to introduce the restrictive law. So it's all a little bit transparent. Next story. Gender recognition certificates, or GRCs, are back in the news. That's after the Westminster government blocked Scottish legislation, which would have made it easier to get one. Now, the clash is set to create an enormous constitutional brouhaha, more on that later, but it's also reopened debates about the merits of gender recognition reform in the first place. And on this, one thing I've often found confusing in this whole debate is that advocates of reform often seem to be arguing that gender recognition certificates don't matter that much. So this happens because in response to opponents of self-ID laws, so they say reforms will let abusive men enter women's spaces, those arguing for self-ID reform tend to say that certificates have nothing to do with access to single-sex spaces anyway, they're just a bit of paper, you're making a big deal out of nothing. Now, what I always think here is that might be true, but it's left me wondering, why would anyone want a GRC in the first place? If they don't change much, then why should anyone care about self-ID reform? It's often left me puzzled. But an interview on Radio 4 this week made it much clearer to me. I was really appreciative of it. This is Laura Kate Dale explaining why getting a gender recognition certificate mattered to her. In the UK, if you want to get married under your, your gender as a trans person, you have to have a gender recognition certificate. Uh, for me, it was a case of I wanted to get married and I didn't want to, on my wedding day, have to write down Mr. and male on what should be the, one of the most feminine feeling days of my life, getting married to the person I love. Um, at the end of the day, there's only really three things, uh, basically, that the gender recognition certificate actually impacts. It's who you can get married as, who you get buried as when you die, what name and gender is put on your death certificate, and some stuff around taxes and pensions. Largely, a gender recognition certificate is important so that someone can be affirmed as who they are when they get married, and that when they die, their family can't override their wishes and bury them as someone they're not. Mm. So in, in all these cases, it, it's not actually 
that you can't get married. It's it's a feeling thing about who you are when you get married. So it's an identity yeah. certificate it's, rather yeah. than a this is a license to do X, Y, or Z. Exactly. Rather than, yeah. It is it is about validity and about who you are not being disregarded. It's about on my wedding day in my beautiful white dress, not having to go and say. On this day, I am male and write down Mr. on that certificate and forever have my wedding certificate say Mr. Yeah. It's about being confident in the knowledge that if and when I die, I won't be buried as male. It's very no. minimal little bits of paperwork. Well, I thought was a really helpful contribution. As I say, I've often found this confusing because it seems like the people arguing for gender recognition reform are saying, well, the GRC doesn't matter, so why do you care? But I thought that was a good explanation of why, even if it doesn't impinge on other people, which is the argument for it, it still matters for the person with the gender recognition certificate. I thought that example of a marriage where you want that to be a really special occasion, you want to treasure your, your marriage documentation, actually, you know, if you see that, it's not about you. If you're a trans person and it's misgendering you, you're seeing that as, as an affront to you, not as something to be celebrated. So I thought that was a very useful intervention. The Tories, of course, though, say that the impacts of gender recognition reform won't be just symbolic. They say it will have significant effects on the implementation of equalities legislation. For example, they suggest the easing of laws around gender recognition will increase the number of trans people with a legally protected right to participate in single-sex associations or to attend single-sex schools. And as those issues relate to matters reserved to Westminster, they say they're well within their rights to block the Scottish GRC reform. The leader of the SNP in Westminster, Stephen Flynn, sparred with the UK Prime Minister over the issue at PMQs. Mr Speaker, to promise is a thing, to keep it is another. Well, the Scottish Government kept their manifesto promise to the people. And thanks to support from members of all political parties in Holyrood, the GRR bill was passed. Surely in that context, the Prime Minister must recognise that it is a dangerous moment for devolution when both he and indeed the Leader of the Opposition seek to overturn a promise made between Scotland's politicians and Scotland's people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Mr Speaker, let me be crystal clear that the decision in this case is centred on the legislation's consequences for reserved matters. As is laid out in the Scotland Act, which established the Scottish Parliament, which the Honourable Gentleman talks about, and at the time supported by the SNP, this bill would have a significant adverse effect on UK-wide equalities matters, and so the Scottish Secretary, with regret, has rightly acted. No evidence. Mr Speaker, let me be crystal clear. This is the Conservative Party seeking to stoke a culture war against some of the most marginalised people in society. And Scotland's democracy is simply collateral damage. And on that issue of democracy, let's reflect. Because on Monday, the UK government introduced legislation to ban the right to strike against the express wishes of the Scottish government. On Tuesday, they introduced legislation to overturn the GRR against the express wishes of the Scottish government. And this evening, they will seek to put in place legislation that rips up thousands of EU protections against the express wishes of the Scottish government. Are we not now on a slippery slope from devolution to direct rule. No, Mr Speaker, of course we're not. This is simply about protecting UK-wide legislation, about ensuring the safety of women and children. This is not about the devolution settlement. I would urge the honourable gentleman and his party to consider engaging with the UK government on this bill as we did before the legislation passed, so that we can find a constructive way forward in the interests of the people of Scotland and the United Kingdom. There are two important issues here. One is about gender recognition reform. Should it be changed? Should self-ID be how one gets a gender recognition certificate? The other issue is a constitutional one. Who has authority over this? Is it Westminster or is it Holyrood? And there's lots of talk of a constitutional crisis. Now, to find out or to, to explore whether this move by the Conservatives really is an affront to devolution and democracy, earlier today, I spoke to Ross Greer. He's an MSP for the Scottish Greens, who are currently in coalition with the SNP. There's a few points that I think make it really clear that this is overwhelmingly political. The first is, 
if the UK government was concerned about the legal competence of the bill that we passed, and it was passed overwhelmingly, it wasn't about constitutional divisions like a lot of votes in the Scottish Parliament are, they would have used a, a different purse. So they can use Section 33 of the Scotland Act to refer stuff straight to the Supreme Court, which they've done before when they had concerns about whether or not it was within our powers. They didn't use Section 33. They used Section 35, which is something that no UK government has ever used in the 24-year history of the Scottish Parliament to just outright veto this legislation. And their arguments are they're really, really spurious. So at the core of it, they're now saying that it just wouldn't be feasible to operate different schemes for getting a gender recognition certificate in different bits of the UK. But they've never made that argument before in the six years that we've been debating this legislation. This started off at a point where, in fact, the Scottish Conservatives had the legislation in their own manifesto back in, in 2016. So they're making up new legal arguments. But it's also about seeing this as part of a wider pattern. It's really deeply unfortunate that they're attacking the LGBT community here and, and using them to both advance a culture war and undermine the Scottish Parliament. But there's a pattern of undermining devolution that really started around about Brexit. It started with the UK government no longer respecting the Sewell Convention, which is where anything the UK Parliament does that affects um, things that we're responsible for has to come to us and we have to give our consent to it. They just started ignoring when we raised cons uh, consent concerns or where we outright rejected consent. Then they passed the Internal Markets Act, which essentially gives them a wide veto over things that are absolutely within the power of the, the Scottish or the Welsh governments and parliaments. For example, it was much harder than it needed to be for us to even ban a bunch of single-use plastics because they claimed that that might adversely impact English plastic cutlery manufacturers. And now we've got this, the first ever use of a Section 35. So over the last six years or so, we've seen these escalating conservative attacks on Scottish democracy in particular in a way that we've just never seen before in the history of devolution. If this goes to a higher court and they judge that the government's Section 35 order was valid because the gender recognition bill in Scotland would have affected the application of equalities law either in Scotland or in the rest of the UK. If it turns out that their legal argument is vindicated, would that vindicate them? First point there is that this is an argument that they themselves weren't making throughout the, the six years that this bill was going through Parliament. It took much longer than it should have. So this is the most scrutinised bit of legislation in the history of the Scottish Parliament. I can't think of a piece of UK legislation been scrutinised as heavily as this. Two rounds of public consultations, huge amount of parliamentary uh, and public scrutiny on this. So if, and I believe it is incredibly unlikely, but if it goes to court and the court rules in favour of the UK government and says the Section 35 order was valid, it's not really a vindication of them as such because this wasn't an argument they were making throughout the process. This is a last minute political curveball that they've thrown in. If we do end up in that unfortunate situation, though, one of the things that that's going to show is that the current devolution settlement is really inadequate. If something that everybody believed was within the powers of the, the Scottish Parliament, and that I believe is within the powers of the Welsh Parliament as well, that everybody believed that this was something we could do. If it turns out that we can't do it, that throws the current devolution settlement into to wider question. But it is incredibly unlikely. Like I, I can't emphasise enough just how thin the UK government's reasoning is, the stuff that they published yesterday. I mean, it's laughable stuff. We, we had pretty low expectations for the argument they were going to put forward, and they managed to come in far, far below that. In fact, part of their argument is that, and they put this in writing, it should be very hard to obtain a gender recognition certificate. That is something they've never said before. If they'd said that in the first place, they would have been the ones getting taken to court on the basis of a, a violation of human rights. If they're coming in now and saying that the legal argument is that it should be very hard to obtain a GRC and we've made it uh, too easy for trans people to obtain it, then the odds are we're not the ones breaching the law here. The UK government are the ones breaching human rights law and not for the first time. And the UK government in their statement have suggested, you know, what they'd like to happen is for Nicola Sturgeon and Hollywood to have a discussion with the Westminster government to say how could we pass a gender recognition reform which doesn't impinge on reserved matters. I mean, is there any prospect of that at all? This isn't the first time that that argument has been used when it's a matter of advancing equality in human rights. Those of us who are trying to advance equality are always told that we need to sit down with and hear the legitimate concerns of the people who are opposed. And 
99% of the time, that's not about legitimate concerns. They're just trying to stop or sabotage the process. You know, when uh, the people who came before us were trying to get Section 28 uh, repealed, they were told that they had to sit down and listen to the legitimate concerns of those who claim that all queer people are potential sex offenders. When we were trying to get equal marriage across the, the line, both in Scotland and in England, we were told that we had to sit down and listen to the legitimate concerns of those who just fundamentally believe that same-sex relationships are not valid or are not equal. And in this specific case, it's laughable because their argument now, and that these are all new arguments that the UK government were not making in the six-year passage of this bill, but they're making now that it's been passed. Their argument is that it would be um, unfeasible for us to have different systems north and south of the border for obtaining a gender recognition certificate. If that's the case, their issue isn't with the specifics of this bill. It's with the whole thing. It's with the, the principle of Scotland having its own system for obtaining GRC. So I don't know how we can possibly compromise with them. Where is the meeting in the middle if their argument is simply that Scotland can't do this? It has to be a UK-wide scheme, especially given that they have dropped their own commitment, which UK governments had, even Tory governments up until recently, they had a commitment to reform the, the gender recognition certificate system under Theresa May. If their argument now is that we can't have different systems at all, there is no compromise to be reached there. That's them just telling us that we can't do this. And we reject that. We are not going to leave the trans community behind here. We'll, we'll fight this in court because we believe that we have a legal right to make this process, this pretty minor admin process, that little bit easier for trans people. Next story. Earlier this week, it emerged that serving Metropolitan Police Officer David Carrick used his position to rape, imprison and assault at least 12 women over 20 years. That was despite there being multiple incidents over that period that were brought to the attention of the police. And now it turns out that there are some 800 other officers under investigation within the Met, with more than 1,000 claims of sexual or domestic abuse against them. In response to Carrick's conviction on 49 charges, Home Secretary Suella Braverman gave this statement to the House of Commons. Mr Speaker, from the moment I became Home Secretary, I've made clear that things have to change. Public trust is precious. Our model of policing by consent connect, cannot, cannot work effectively without it. I discussed this case yesterday with the Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, Sir Mark Rowley, and I'm encouraged by the action that he has taken so far with his team to root out officers who are not fit to wear the badge. This effort is being spearheaded by a new anti-corruption and abuse command. But there is still some way to go to ensure that the force can command the trust of the people that it serves. It is vital that the Metropolitan Police and other forces double down on their efforts to root out corrupt officers. This may mean more shocking cases come to light in the short term. The revelations about Carrick come nearly two years since the shocking abduction, rape and murder of Sarah Everard by another serving Met officer, Wayne Cousins. So what exactly has the Home Office done to make sure that police officers aren't a danger to women since then? Well, not a lot, according to Shadow Home Secretary Yvette Cooper. There are still no legal requirements on vetting. Forces can effectively do what they want. They don't even have to check employment history and character references, and some don't. They don't even have to interview people beforehand. And when the inspectorate came up with damning conclusions that hundreds, if not thousands, of police officers who should have failed vetting, including corrupt and predatory officers who have committed, including officers who have committed offences on indecent exposure and domestic abuse, are still in the job, the policing minister refused to even make it a requirement for police forces to follow the recommendations of the inspectorate. They just shrugged and said that it was a matter for police forces to follow. There's been no response to make this compulsory to follow vetting guidance, no uh, requirement to make it compulsory to follow the reforms. And all we've got in this statement is a continuation of existing Angelini review 
and a new review, another one on dismissals, which I welcome because this had, there are concerns that the dismissals uh, process has become more difficult and has become worse since well-intended reforms were introduced but have not worked as intended. So I welcome that review, but it was announced in October and it still hasn't started and all the Home Secretary has done is re-announce it today. And some of the things that police forces have been doing to tackle misogyny or to increase diversity, to improve their response to communities and to crime, the Home Secretary has dismissed as woke, even though they are about tackling some of the most serious crimes. That's a pretty powerful indictment. Let's play Braverman's response. It's a disappointment that the Shadow Home Secretary has resorted to cheap political lines. I don't think today is a day for political attacks. There's been a human tragedy at the heart of this case. And ultimately... Politics should be set aside. Politics should be set aside. Now, one of the issues with the Carrick case is that because of his many previous run-ins with the law, multiple police officers must have known that he was potentially a danger, even keeping him on the force after he was arrested on an accusation of rape in the summer of 2021. So what does that say about the safety of the Met as a whole? That's a question that Susanna Reid put to Met Commissioner Sir Mark Rowley. How does any woman reporting a sexual offence against them, know that the person they're reporting it to is not in some way either accused of something similar or tolerating something similar in their department. How, how on earth being told that it's all right, most of them are all right, doesn't mean that, as we know, that there aren't people there who might have been offending for, in this case, 20 years while metropolitan police officers. How do I know that? I, I can't, I'm not going to make a promise that I can't stick to. I'm going to put in place ruthless systems to squeeze out those who shouldn't be with us. Most of our officers are fantastic. The people who specialise in this area are great and they have the skills. Um, but do I have some officers who shouldn't be in the Met that I've got to identify and get rid of? Yes, I do. And I'm completely frank about that. The problem of predatory and abusive police officers extends far beyond the Met. Andy Cook is the Chief Inspector of Constabulary. He's in charge of maintaining standards in police forces across England and Wales. In the wake of the Carrick revelations, he appeared before Parliament's Home Affairs Select Committee, where its chair, Labour's Diana Johnson, asked him this. Can I just ask you very bluntly then, do you think that uh, the police service is institutionally sexist? No, I don't. And I think right. if, if, we, well, if we look at the fact that we now have more female police officers than before, um, on, the, on the most recent uh, intakes, four out of every 10 officers who were joining are female officers. Uh, roughly 40% of the policing establishment is female and 40% of chief constables are female. So policing has come on leaps and bounds over many, many years in relation to this. Uh, institutionally, misogynist? No, I don't think it is. Is the significant issues in parts of policing? Is the significant issues with individuals and groups in parts of policing? Then yes, there is. Okay, because I'm just looking at your report from the end of last year. We are left in no doubt that in too many places, a culture of misogyny, sexism and predatory behaviour towards members of the public and female police officers and staff still exists. Absolutely. And we did a survey of 11,000 officers and staff. Uh, and those results were shocking. Um, I think I think actually we should call this for what it is, and it's actually institutional sexism. I will say there are significant issues in relation to sexism and misogyny. There are multiple problems with sexism and misogyny everywhere, but it's not institutional. It seems a little bit counterintuitive to me. What of Rishi Sunak, though? Well, after meeting with the Met Commissioner, he spoke to Sky News and revealed the government's plan to keep dangerous police officers out of the Met. I've just had a constructive meeting with the Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police and made clear to him, and he agrees, that the abuse of power that we've seen this week is absolutely despicable and it needs to be addressed immediately. Now, that's why all police forces across the country have been told to check all of their serving officers and staff against national police databases to identify and root out anybody who shouldn't be serving. The government's done a huge amount already to protect the safety of women and girls, but we will keep going and doing whatever it takes to ensure that women and girls 
feel safe and can go about their lives freely and without fear. Now, that might sound like a good start, but it's not clear exactly what checking police officers against national databases will reveal. Carrick, for example, was never arrested until 2021, and it's not clear that he was ever even cautioned. Will complaints show up on this database, or do people have had to have been found to have taken part in wrongdoing? It all seems a little bit ambiguous, and uh, there's little reason to feel reassured because in 2017, Carrick did undergo a supposedly tougher revetting procedure. And he passed. And as we know, there have been multiple complaints made against him by that point. So Ella Braverman is someone who fundamentally believes that the police are a good and neutral institution who have been tarnished by a few bad apples, but with the right reforms, checks and balances, vetting processes and recruitment policies, order can be restored. Of course, this obscures the fact that the police are fundamentally uh, a violent, misogynistic, sexist force. It's not just institutional. This is what the police exist to do. When she says, for example, that uh, we have a system in the UK of policing by consent, that's perfectly true of a tiny minority of bobbies on the beat, you know, patrolling leafy suburbs, giving a wink and a wave to, you know, passing school children or whatever. But for the vast majority of this country, we don't have policing by consent, but by brute force. We have tasers, we have kettles, we have tear gas, you know, we have automated policing and predictive policing, facial recognition algorithms with inbuilt racism. And so the idea that the police system is a neutral and, and force for good and that it just uh, has lapsed is obviously is totally misguided. The idea also that bad people join the police force um, is, you know, a fundamentally good institution is also wrong. You know, the fact is anyone could join the police force and the violence of the system itself, you know, it's not that people are brutal per se, it's that the violence of the system brutalizes them. You know, Mother Teresa could join the police force and I'm sure she'd be a monster in not long at all. So I think Fundamentally, Suella Braverman gets it wrong because she thinks that the police are the good guys and all we need to do is restore law and order. Do you not think there's maybe a bit of a danger in that kind of response that you've given there? Because, I mean, uh, there presumably is a moment now where there can be real public consensus to have really strong, tough reforms in the police to sort of root out misogynists and, and rapists. And I don't think it's going to be easy, but I wouldn't trust the police to be left to do it themselves. I think it's necessary. And I suppose if my concern with your intervention there is if we frame this as there are two options, abolishing the police or having a police force full of rapists, then, you know, potentially that's polarizing something in a way that isn't necessarily going to be to the benefit of the left, because people might say, well, if, if the police will necessarily have rapists in it, I'm going to choose the police with some rapists in it because they don't want the alternative or your alternative, which seems to be no police. The problem isn't really with who the police recruit, although that that may be a small part of the problem. The problem is more so how the police operate and what that makes people do and what that turns people into. Of course, violent people are going to be more attracted to policing because I imagine they, they conceive of it as an opportunity to arrest, bat on, cattle, all the things that I said earlier, their fellow human beings. But I think fundamentally what the problem is is how the police works. However, I do think that, you know, as progressives as leftists, we should avoid getting too caught up in the kind of weeds of thinking about how we reform, review, investigate policing and use this as an opportunity to call for a divestment and a kind of reallocation of resources away from policing and into the kind of social services and state and non-state kind of infrastructure that dismantles patriarchy outside of the police. You know, the police aren't just some particular um, kind of uh, champions or spearhead of patriarchy. They're a reflection of our broader society. And it's that that needs to change. We need to create a society that doesn't require, not that it does, policing rather than reforming the police. Because I think ultimately that buys into this idea that, you know, the police can be reformed. Now, of course, that isn't to say that I think things should remain as they are in the immediate term. What I'm saying is that I think we shouldn't expend too much energy imagining what tinkering we can do to the Metropolitan Police, because ultimately, I think that solutions lie outside of it. Final story of the evening. 
the House of Commons can seem a pretty weird place. You have to refer to everyone as a right honourable lady or gentleman. You can't call known liars liars. And until 1998, to raise a point of order, you had to wear a top hat. Don't believe me? Have a look at this. Yes, point of order. Uh, Madam Speaker. Get the hat, I will hear him, otherwise I can't. Thank you. Point of order, Madam Speaker. Uh, a relatively simple matter for you to rule on. As the uh, Treaty of Rome, as amended, includes the words acqui communitaire, uh, before we vote, as we're thinking of voting, if my honourable friend's bill was successful, would the Treaty of Rome then cease to have effect? <laughs> <laughs> Think the honourable gentleman is indulging in a lot of wishful thinking. <laughs> Rivka, what did we just witness there? God knows. I mean, like theatre. It, it reminds me of that scene a few years ago of Jacob Rees-Mogg sort of reclining on the Tory benches. Um, and I think it's a reminder, you know, of, of what our parliament was originally formed to do back in the 10th century. You know, it was a way for the king to consult the noblemen of the land. And, you know, I would argue that not a huge amount has changed since then. I think it's a funny um, sort of reflection and of how... MPs often view their jobs, which is as this kind of debating society theatre spectacle rather than as, you know, representing the citizens of this country. Again, I'm reminded of a piece in, I believe it was The Guardian, about, you know, people across the aisle, like Jacob Rees-Mogg, and it turns out Jess Phillips, who have a wonderful friendship, as if we're all part of a fun, you know, uh, film set uh, where we perform for the cameras every day. But uh, yeah, I think it just shows the kind of disconnect, let's say, between our elected officials and uh, the general public. Yeah, I'm, I can certainly imagine as well the way that we're laughing at that clip now. People in 20 years from now will be looking at all the bizarre shit that goes on in the House of Commons and the House of Lords and saying, I cannot believe they used to do that. I mean, I presume there are people in other countries looking at what happens in our parliament and saying, I can't believe they do that. This looks like some backward feudal shit, which it is, really. But I hadn't realized the top hat thing. That was a clip that went viral on, on Twitter this week. So I thought it was worth showing you. Let's wrap up there. Rivka, it's been a delight being joined by you for a whole show. Yeah, it's been great to be here. Even if we do have our differences on the question of abolitionism, Michael. We will continue to come back to those, I am sure. A productive discussion, I think. Thank you so much for watching Tiski Sour. We're going to be back on Friday at 7 p.m. For now, you've been watching Navarro Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com/support.